Today's episode of The Shamrock is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a pop quiz. Do you think Notre Dame tickets are cheaper three weeks before the game or three hours? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is a leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last minute tickets. Welcome to the Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined by Matt Fortuna. The morning after Notre Dame's 30-27 victory over USC at Notre Dame Stadium. Uh, Matt, you enjoyed this from your couch, uh, along with probably a bunch of other football. Uh, I was down on the field doing something with NBC, so I got to sort of take in the full home field advantage. And it, I mean, it felt not at the level of Georgia, but it felt like a, a big-time home game atmosphere. I mean, it, it felt like sort of the home field vibe that a college football playoff contender deserves. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just sort of a very cool, you know, forget the green out for a second, but um, you know, the flashlights and the flyover and all that stuff, it just, it, it felt like a real show. Um, and I don't know how much of that came through on TV, but uh, being here in person, it just, um, I give sort of Notre Dame some credit for creating something uh, at a place where let's be honest, like the home field advantage, even though they've won 15 straight here, doesn't always uh, meet the level of the history and tradition of this place. Yeah, I'm not sure it came through on TV, but I follow enough fans and writers and everyone else on all forms of social media that definitely seem to have a different kind of edge or atmosphere to it behind the scenes, uh, whether it was the tailgates or, or in the stands. And I, I noticed that that um, flashlight, cell phone light-up thing or whatever you want or that Georgia does uh, at the end of the third quarter as well. I'm not really sure what the, the genesis of it is or, or, or what the the moment meant, but it, it looked pretty cool to me. <laughs> the Georgia game. The Georgia game was the genesis. They're like, huh, this is pretty cool. I wonder if we can do this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it serves the games itself. I thought uh, it was interesting sort of following the game. You know, we all sort of, like, follow the game on Twitter in addition to, like, with our own eyeballs watching TV or in person. And the the sense that I got from people watching the game is like kind of a frustration that Notre Dame was not moving the ball more effectively, that uh, Chip Long's play calling was sort of passive, that Clark Lee was, you know, too conservative. But I mean, like being there and sort of seeing the, the pieces move back and forth and then talking to Brian Kelly a little bit after the game and obviously talking to people around the program before it. I, I mean, I, I thought it was a really good performance by Notre Dame's both coordinators. And it, it was sort of the one, maybe not the one time, but the, certainly the one time in a big spot this season where I felt like Chip really produced and came through on a big stage when Notre Dame needed it. Um, you know, at Georgia, I thought they had a good game plan, but not they, you know, the material there was not to do it. And they had some some costly mistakes. Uh, I... I really like the way that uh, Notre Dame called the game on both sides of the ball in terms of how creative it was with some things, but also how sort of patient and disciplined it was with others, whether it be the defense willing to concede some some pretty significant rushing yardage up the middle to for the trade-off of taking away Michael Pittman and Tyler Vaughn's on the outside, or Chip Long in particular, that, uh, that last drive, the 14-play, 75-yard, 6-minute, 54-second 
12 run two pass um, series to essentially end it. I mean, I thought that was, that was outstanding. I mean, that's, that's sort of the best of chip long when he could sort of build, take the run and then just sort of beat you over the head with it, but also get creative with it at the same time. Yeah, Pete, no kidding. The, the fans did not see eye to eye with you. Have you read the comments on your story this morning? Yeah, I know. It is uh, <laughs> it's like, a group of fans who apparently watch a different football game than you did last it's night. Strange to me. I mean, it's like they USC USC does not suck. I mean, that's the thing that really strikes you watching them live is just how much speed they have all over the place. Um, and I, man, I just thought that. You know, if Notre Dame was going to get beat in this, they couldn't let Vaughns and Pittman beat them to the outside. So you take that away, and then you give up Marquis Step running, like averaging eight yards to carry up the middle. I think it's just a deal you have to make with yourself that we're not going to get beat by USC's receivers if they move the ball. I mean, they look, USC scored. They had four possessions in the second half. They scored on all four of them. Field goal, touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. But the point, the deal Notre Dame was willing to make was we're up, we can sort of sit on the ball, we can play slow, we can make you play slow. And even if you score on every single drive, that's not going to be enough to win the game. Um, that's, to me, that's like, that's good strategic thinking if you're Notre Dame. But I I get it, people want to see a replay of the 2017 game. Uh, I don't, this Notre Dame team is just, is not at that level. Um, and USC showed a lot more composure mentally than that 2017 did, which basically quit from the second Sam Darnold fumbled the opening snap, uh, or Will Fuller ran by a Dory Jackson. Like this USC team is a hell of a lot better than that. Um, it's probably why Clay Helton won't be its coach next year because they they should be a lot better than what they are. Yeah, it was interesting. I was on a text thread with a couple of buddies who are ND fans, and, and one of them at the beginning texted, "Oh my God, you know USC is so much more, so much faster than us. I, I can't believe this." And like, you know, Louisville was faster than you guys. I mean, let's face it. We, we've gone over this a million times. Notre Dame has had a number of recruiting failures at the skill positions, uh, which Louisville might end up being Notre Dame's best win of the year, by the way. Hats off to Scott Satterfield. Great 62-59 finish at Wake Forest last night. I'm sure you were not able to to watch from the Brian Kelly press conference, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Ryan Abraham, who does a tremendous job covering uh, USC out there, had a tweet after the game. Um, I know it was a pretty clean game on both sides, but uh, USC has now failed to win the turnover battle in 19 straight games, the longest streak in the nation. Um, and I think that goes a little bit to your point, too. Like, Notre Dame had the lead. They played with the lead. You could call it conservative. You could call it whatever you wanted, but they did what they needed to do to come out of there with a victory heading into the bye week. And, you know, USC doesn't suck. I mean, they have a lot of really good football players on that roster, regardless of their record year to year. And that always makes them dangerous, regardless of the circumstances coming into the game every year. You know they're going to get up for this one, especially coming off a bye week, especially with their quarterback healthy again. Um, it, It was a weird game. I mean, in real time, I had trouble kind of making sense of it you know I I got some of the same feelings that I had um, last year's game now obviously the stakes weren't nearly as big for either team Notre Dame had been playing for a playoff berth then USC was playing for a bowl berth slash what we thought was for Clay Helton's job Um, but but it just seemed like one of those games where it was closer than we thought it would be or at least I thought it would be Uh, USC looked a little bit sharper and cleaner than I thought they would be but I just never really got the sense watching that game that Notre Dame was ever in real jeopardy of losing it. Even on that last drive, um, when they really were able to bleed the clock and run the ball down USC's throats and Ian Book dove in for, for the, the clinching touchdown, if you will. 
it, it seemed kind of methodical and, and dare I say, predictable. Just because USC just has never shown anything this season in terms of being able to stop the run or really get that big stop and get that defense off the field when they needed to. Now, had they done that and had Keaton Slovis had the ball in his hands down three late, sure, I, I think there's a good chance USC could, could score and win the game there. But uh, as long as Notre Dame didn't get ahead of itself or, or do anything tricky or stupid down there. I, I just had this weird kind of sense of comfort, if you will, watching Ian Book r- run Chip Long's offense there, knowing that everything was going to be okay. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's that was a, it should, should have been a comforting point of this whole thing for Notre Dame is that you have an offense that, to me, it, it felt very much like that drive was a bridge to the Harry He stand era, like where you're like, all right, we're just going to put this on the line. You guys go get it. No problem. Um and like, yeah, book scrambled for 17 yards on third and 10. So just sitting there and saying no problem is probably oversimplifying things. But um, I I will say like when USC scored to make it 23-20, it, I don't think I tweeted it, but I can guarantee you that I thought it, that Notre Dame was not going to be able to win the game with 23 points. Um, so were they in jeopardy of losing at that point? I guess kind of, sort of. Um, but only if their offense and their offensive line didn't respond. And that's, I think that this has always sort of been the game plan since Chip Long's been here um, and Brian Kelly's turned over play calling to him is they're going to run the ball. And by the time the fourth quarter comes around, you're not going to have a whole lot left in the tank to stop it. And I mean, USC, USC did not. I mean, we're, we take a moment uh, of appreciation for Tony Jones's 25 carries, 176 yard performance in a game where, you know, you're think about this after Louisville. If you said, you know what, Matt, Notre Dame is going to beat USC by three points, and the MVPs of the game are going to be Tony Jones, Jonathan Dorr, and Asmar Bilal. I mean, that was just a really bizarre set of that was the strangest thing of the whole game to me. It's like the guys that ultimately made the difference for Notre Dame were guys either we were terrified of watching when the season started. Or after the opener at Louisville, we're like, yeah, man, they got to find somebody else for that position. And, you know, for those three guys to to really deliver, um, Jones in particular, which, look, it says a ton and says more about the offensive line than it does about the running back. But um, USC has a lot of really fast players. And for for Tony Jones to deliver was was really impressive to me. The USC slayer, Tony Jones. I remember he had the 51-yard kind of dump off for me and Buck last year that ended up clinching the game at L.A. and clinching a playoff berth uh, a season ago, and he comes out with a big game last night. Uh, very impressive from him. Um, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about the workload he's had to, to take on here. And did, did we get any clarity on Jafar Armstrong? He was in for, what, like two plays, right, or something? Yeah, so we um, – I, I got clarity on this during the week before the game that, like, he had a good practice on Tuesday. That they thought he was going to get 15, 20 plays. And then Thursday ran around, came around after practice, and he did not look good at all. Like it was not, it was trending in a really negative direction. At that point, he was a game time decision. Um, we didn't ask Brian Kelly about that specifically after the game, but from talking to people inside the Goog, that's that's what I was told. That what happened to him last night was not really a surprise. It was a disappointment. But by Thursday, they knew that that was he needed more time than than they had anticipated. Yeah, I figured it was going to be Michigan all along until they started talking the way they did this week. And I think, you know, Mike Trico made mention he hasn't played yet. And they said, wait, I think he was in on the first play of the game or, or one of the first plays of the game. And you just never really saw him again. So I was just kind of curious if anything was amiss there. But um, t- 
Tony Jones Jr., great game. Uh, Jonathan Doerr, great game. Um, kicker again, a game ball at, at USC. I, I mean, well, if your kicker's get a game ball, that means, you know, you won and he did something right. So I guess that's a good sign. But um, I, I'm always fascinated by fan bases' love-hate relationship with kickers. Um, when Seth Emerson was on, he talked about how much everyone loves Rodrigo Blankenship at Georgia. And I don't know if those same Georgia fans are, are singing that tune here on this <laughs> Sunday morning uh, <laughs> after yesterday. Can we get into that, by the way? Notre Dame schedule. Um, Bowling Green looking really good, by the way. Great rivalry win over Toledo yesterday. <laughs> I did not expect but Bowling Green to come up on this podcast. <laughs> if there's an opportunity to fit in Brian Van Gorder, um, yeah, we are so going should, to fit it in. You However, do it. Uh, Michigan like really kind of made it interesting against Illinois with a backup quarterback. Georgia, uh, not so good. Uh, who am I missing here? Someone Virginia. Else all that crazy. Virginia. Virginia yeah. lost at Miami and looked like a, a, just a hot mess. So... It's uh yeah, it's interesting to sort of look at Notre Dame and Louis- Louisville wins at Wake Forest and then out of New Mexico, I'm sure played a game, but I'm unaware of who, who they played or what they lo- they blew a big lead Friday night, I think. I think. I mean, who's to, who's to say they lost at Colorado State? Yeah. Okay, that's <laughs> they lost at Colorado State. It just, I mean, I don't know if this did this loss or the Notre Dame's win. Um, sort of change your perception of where Notre Dame's season was going. Because I'm, I'm not sure that it did, nor do I think that the Georgia and Virginia results really changed my perception of where Notre Dame's season is going. I mean, I feel like they're, they've got a chance to go 11-1. and one. I think that the big the biggest changes for the, the my perception of the season from Notre Dame's point of view are less about Notre Dame and more about how mediocre Michigan is and how bad Stanford is. Um, but I think that's sort of been in the cards for a while now. Uh, and if, if Notre Dame is getting healthier, if Jafar Armstrong is going to be back finally for Michigan, and now suddenly you have Braden Lindsay in the mix, um, you know, it's, it's very, it's been a while. It's been a while since Will Fuller was here and, and Notre Dame just had a faster offensive skill player than what USC had out there on defense. But they have that now. If he's part of the mix um, and not just in a, you can do it against Bowling Green in New Mexico kind of way. Um I would think that it, it only makes Notre Dame going winning out and going eleven and one more likely. Yeah, yesterday didn't really do anything to change my perception of Notre Dame for better or for worse. Um, I thought they played pretty well last night. They came away with a win against a very talented team. Uh, I don't think the manner in which they did it should sour fans whatsoever. A win is a win, especially against your rival, especially going into a bye week with another rival on deck on the other side of it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we've been trending that way all year, right? Michigan just hasn't looked that good. Stanford just hasn't looked that good. Maybe Georgia was overhyped a little bit. I don't want to overreact to one game. Certainly, they're, they're, the complexity of their season and their outlook took on a major turn for the worst yesterday because they're going to have to beat Auburn, Florida, and if they do that, either LSU or Alabama afterward to, to probably make the playoff, and I just don't think that's probable. Um I don't know if that loss hurts Notre Dame's quote-unquote playoff hopes as much as everyone made it out to be. I think if you're Notre Dame, it's such a, a long shot as is, given the nature of the schedule and, and the lack of not 13th game necessarily, but a conference championship game, um, that I think you just kind of root for chaos if you're a Notre Dame fan looking for a path to a playoff right now. And, and games like South Carolina beating Georgia, I think, are the way that happens. Um, North Carolina almost beating Clemson could have been one. You know, you need – these crazy upsets to happen all over the country and you need a lot of them to happen. I'm not sure there was like a formulaic approach of 
Georgia wins out and then everyone else loses twice and then oh Notre Dame only lost by six points to the best team in the country on the road I, I just think it never works out that neat and so if you're Notre Dame uh just win 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 and uh root for the world to burn around you so you're saying that Notre Dame should not be concerned by Stu Mandel dropping Notre Dame out of his top 10 this morning um I want my checks to still clear uh every other <laughs> you're week, gonna, so you're gonna no comment me on that one Sad. <laughs> this, that's, that's a sad take there, man. Can, we, but, can we talk about the real story of the night, which was not brought to our attention until I think you retweeted it this morning? Brian Kelly getting salty. Salty at halftime. Yeah. I, so is that who he was yelling at, Dave Campo? I, I, I don't know that. that. That's what a lot of the, the commenters and tweeters said, and we know they're okay. almost a thousand percent accurate. I love, so I love that it. part of the game because I feel like Notre Dame too often is like, ooh, we don't, we don't want to stir anything up. Like, you expect that from Oklahoma, Texas all the time, or, you know, I'm sure LSU, Alabama will be like that too. Very rarely do you get that from Notre Dame, USC. I know it's happened in the past, but I loved it. But like that shot from, um, yeah, oh my God, that was really one of the best parts of the game. The fact that, uh, well, first, Brian Kelly, clearly salty at somebody. I I loved it because um, like, I mean, I don't know what he was saying, but I mean, there there were a bunch of four letters in there based on his posture, his pointing, and like how high his chin was pointing up. Pete, um, Pete, Pete, Pete. This is the new Brian Kelly 2.0. He doesn't get yeah. red faced. He doesn't yell. He doesn't curse. He knows the walk-ons names now. Like, I don't know what you're talking I'm, about. I'm all for yelling at cursing at the opponent. Um, I think that's great. I, I, I'm down for more of this. Uh, I, well, remember the last time anything like this happened was at the end of the Stanford game in 16, remember, with the strength coach. Oh, injury. God. Yeah, that was that was less good. Um, <laughs> that was not as not a good scene at all. You know, this was I like that part of it. Um, you know, I didn't get to see because I was down on the field. I, I've not seen the replay of him out on the field for the onside kick at the end. Um, but I oh, think that was probably related. the first. I, I'm person, watching it live, the, thinking, the, "What are you doing?" Yeah, that was like the first question put to Clay Helton. After the game, and he was he was not pleased about the way that was called or not called. But I mean, the officials overall, when you can't remember the t- name of one of the teams, it's just not a very good night. And for Notre Dame's fan base, I don't know if this came through on TV or Tariko mentioned it, but I mean they they were just chanting UCLA at USC for like bits and spots of the second half, particularly at the end of the game. It was it was awesome. I mean, nothing could be more emasculating for USC than being confused with UCLA. Yeah, especially this time of the year. Uh, I, that did not come through on the TV, but that is a Kudos Notre Dame fans there. That's pretty funny. Uh, just not exactly a banner day for officiating around the country between the way last night's game ended, uh, the Penn State game on uh, the second screen, and that one was just awful uh, in terms of some of the, the overturns and, and whatnot that happened there and the lack of explanations from the Big Ten. We saw Memphis get absolutely screwed against Temple in, in the noon game. Uh, and then Mike Defee, everyone's favorite jacked ref, uh, the college version of Ed Hockley, uh, just really taking over the, the, the Texas-Oklahoma game early on uh, between issuing everyone uh, in the sports mic penalty uh, before the game and basically saying at, at the coin toss, uh, let's not embarrass ourselves. This is one of the great traditions in sport. Uh, yeah, speaking of embarrassing. Uh, but I, I can see why Clay Helton was very upset. I mean, I'm live on TV, and again, you know, you have a, a much better angle when they're not um, – when they have a standard traditional – football view, not the uh, uh, Skycam view, you're able to see Brian Kelly. And I, I wasn't sure it was Brian Kelly, but you saw a coach on the field 
basically dragging one of his players uh, into position. Now, uh, I, I have like different viewpoints when it comes to something like this. My, my thing is he didn't get called for it, and it worked because the players listened and adjusted to where the kick was going to go. So all's well that ends well. Of course, if he gets flagged for that, that's one of the stupidest penalties a head coach can ever get. And your onside kick's probably only five yards then, where it's much more of a 50-50 proposition. And USC has a great chance of getting the ball back down three with a minute left. And maybe your head coach just costs you a rivalry victory. Um, can you imagine um, ND Nation and all of our BFFs on the internet right now at this time, if that had happened? I mean, it would be up there with them getting flagged against Pittsburgh for two players with the same number um, on a field goal that you know, that, that could have ended Notre Dame's perfect season for just a stupid, stupid thing. But yeah, I mean, this is not at that level because that it's not like it makes the onside kick any easier to recover. Um, it's just bizarre that it happened, um, you know, in that, in that setting and in that moment. Um, yeah, I'd say officials uh, being afflicted with self-importance is one of college football's great traditions. Cause I, I mean, I don't, I'm assuming this came through on the broadcast. They showed it, but Notre Dame and USC also got hit with the unsportsmanlike conduct on everybody penalty, which I think is like the lamest cop out for officials. Like, do your job and figure out what happened. Like, that's why you're there to like. I mean, imagine if like there was a holding penalty and the officials were like, "That's a holding penalty on every offensive lineman, even the ones that weren't in the game." Like, what the hell is that? (laughs) I think it was the Texas OU game where they said false start on everyone but the center. But it is a cop out. I mean, and like, let's face it, like, it's fun. We're talking about it. The fans get juiced up. Nothing happened. I mean, I don't think a no. single person laid an arm on anyone. It was trash talk. It's football. Like, it's 2019. Can we all just relax a little bit? I mean, it's just between that, the rough and penalty on Ian Buck on that third down in, in the second Ugh. half. Uh, just, just let the kids play, will you? Yeah, I mean, there was, I thought that that. That was palatable only because they completely missed uh, Ian Book getting clocked out of bounds right in front of the official uh, earlier in the game. When I mean, I think it was I think it was Houston hit him and just threw him into the bench, and the the ref was too busy getting out of the way of the collision to like see what had happened. Um, so maybe there was there was some balancing of that, but yeah, the just to miss the the Brian Kelly thing at the end, and then the the personal foul on sportsman like Connex and everybody are just like, come on guys. Like this is really the best you could do. You have, you have like nine officials out there. There were just, just do a better job of this. Like, it, and also wasn't this like why they created multiple tunnels. So stuff like this wasn't going to happen. Right. right. You know, which I was reminded of, um, when I was at the Virginia game a couple weeks ago, it's so small. You walked right by it and don't even notice it until the end of the game. And they're actually entering there. But yeah, I mean, what, what's, I mean, it wasn't a, uh, uh, I don't think it was Brian Kelly saying, save Clay, Clay Heldon's ass for me, the way Lou Holtz did with Jimmy Johnson. This wasn't 1988 <laughs> with the Hurricanes. I mean, these are no, nor do, nor do I think he was like, ledger, you need to play with traits of sportsmanship, sirs. Like, <laughs> it was. Uh... And by the way, screw Dave Campa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't know what he has against Dave Campa, even if, like whether it's Dave Campa or not. I'm, I kind of want to get to the bottom of this now. Um, but yeah, it was just like. This, these are the kinds of games, uh, to back it up, like that playoff contenders win, that very stable programs win. I mean, they won 15 in a row at home. They've won 16 in a row as a favorite, uh, three in a row against USC. I just, I mean, overall, like my, my takeaway from the game to like get real big picture about it, it was just like, it was a very mature performance all the way around from Notre Dame. Um, 
they, you know, again, and they're playing against a team that is classically immature. Um, they're, they're very young, but also not very well coached. So I think if, if you're Notre Dame, you should, you, not that this should have changed your mind or like suddenly made you see the light about something, but Notre Dame is a well coached, mature team. And there are a lot of, like just ask Georgia, that's, that doesn't happen every week everywhere uh, around college football. So Notre Dame should feel good about that right now. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, it was uh, – it, it, it's not always going to be pretty. And, you know, Georgia, South Carolina is maybe the extreme example of it. But, like, these things ha- happen, you know. I mean, anyone can get beat on any single day. And Almost happened to uh, Clemson against North Carolina. Exactly, exactly. Um I don't think there's anything they need to apologize for with last night. It was uh, it was a win to bring you what seven and three, I think, in the Brian Kelly era against USC. And yeah. while we're on that subject, I I do want to play a game with you, Pete, and I think uh, we might have the exact same answer. But who do you think is coaching on the sidelines in the Coliseum when Notre Dame visits them to conclude the 2020 season? Mm. I I am not all in on the Urban Meyer to USC because I think there's there's a little too much in the closet there. So I'm gonna. I don't know if this is going to break our producer John Hayes heart or not. I think it's going to be James Franklin. That that would be. I think he's the the one B uh, certainly to, to Urban Meyer's one A, and I don't think everything that's come out of State College this week uh, has helped him from a recruiting standpoint uh, or, or perception standpoint. I'm talking about the the nasty letter a fan sent to a team captain this week and the T-shirts Penn State players wore in warmups against Iowa. Um, I, I'm going to go Urban Meyer, but. Um, at the end of the day, it's going to be his call, and like I, you know, people can laugh all they want. I, I, I do think the hell stuff is legitimate. I think it's stuff that has been used against him in recruiting in the past, and is going to get used against him even more in recruiting in the past. That said, USC is one of maybe five jobs in the world where you can recruit nothing but five stars without ever getting on an airplane, and you can uh, live the LA lifestyle and have the players come to you and. Uh, have a conference that's really there for the taking too. When when you have the the advantages of a blue blood that USC does, and those jobs just don't open up every other year. So, well, USC's has kind of the last ten years, but um, <laughs> yeah, so it's like, what are you think, talking about, uh, Matt? Ultimately, <laughs> I, I think ultimately that's going to be too much for Urban Meyer to pass up. But I do think James Franklin would be a very worthy um, alternate if it doesn't work out um, from the urban standpoint. By the way, USC's president was kind of trending last night, wasn't you? Hey, yeah, Brady. Thanks for Brady Quinder for pointing that out. Um, <laughs> I totally, I totally would have missed that. That you just, you just don't really see that from uh, Reverend John Jenkins very much. Was that you walking by her that she was giving the double eye to? <laughs> I was down on the field, but it was definitely not me. Um, okay, I just wanted, I couldn't tell. Yeah, had <laughs> a hat on. Yeah, it could have could have been more like a Chris Sims look. That would have been fine, but yeah. So it's uh, I yeah, USC next year will will be fascinating because I mean, if it's Urban Meyer, that you know, are, are you sort of restarting the Pete Carroll um, program at that point, where you get whoever you want and you're maximizing that ability? Because that Urban Meyer at USC would be that would be a real pain in the ass for Notre Dame. There's just no way around it. You know what's going to be fascinating to me, and I don't want to turn this into an Urban Meyer USC podcast, but you know, one, one aspect to this I don't think has been discussed enough is what's Urban Meyer going to do for his staff if he does come back to USC uh, this year? Because pretty much the entire DNA of his program is still at Columbus at Ohio State. 
um, all of his assistants, his strength staff, his recruiting staff, his personnel staff, and not take away from Ryan Day, but the infrastructure is clearly there for a first-year head coach to succeed with the players on hand that, that Ryan Day does, and you're seeing that so far in Columbus. Uh, does Urban Meyer just go back to Columbus and pull every single one of those guys out to L.A. with him, or does he start from scratch with a bunch of guys that he may not have worked with before? That would be an interesting dynamic for sure. Um, that would be part of it. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the answer would that would to that would be. But um, I think. I think it's all. You know, when when Pete Thamel during the game. I mean, he's up there with Bruce to me in terms of like he knows what's happening with coaches before it happens. When he's tweet, yeah. When he's tweeting like it's over, like this Clay Helton is done. Um, that's as that's as definitive as it gets. You know, that's there's it's hard we're at the point now that even if clay helton wins out which i don't think that he will but let's just say that they do finish nine and three i don't think that's going to be enough anymore i think that that was the bridge that was crossed last night and hey i guess credit for brian for brian kelly and Notre Dame for pushing clay helton over that bridge uh even if it gets you urban meyer on the other side of it um the way the way that brian kelly was talking about clay helton after the game it reminded me a little bit of the way he was talking about brady hoke in 2014 about you know, I have a lot of respect for him as a coach. He's going to get it turned around. Good job. That team fought hard, yada, yada. Um, when your rival is sort of like sticking up for you, that's that's the end of the line. Because um, that's that is not that's as uncomfortable a place to be as when the ref confuses you with UCLA. It's just not that's not where you want to be if you're if you're USC, having Brian Kelly try, having to stick up for your head coach. But that's where they are. And I, I give Notre Dame a lot of credit. And yeah, it's like, I mean, you look at the st- the stability difference between Notre Dame and USC during the Brian Kelly era. I think next year would be, I think it would be the fifth head coach that Brian Kelly would have faced at USC in 11 years. And they'll be on their third or fourth athletic director um, at the same time. It's, you know, Notre Dame is, is, will be Brian Kelly year 11 and Jack Swarbrick probably year 12. So, or maybe it was year 13. That's, that's a, it's a big departure. That's it's a testament to why one program is working and why one program is broken. Yeah, don't don't forget the the president uh, again a, an extension over the weekend as well. Let's not bury the lead here, Pete. However, uh, can, the mood swings with this rivalry are just crazy, right? I mean, you go back to sixteen, and, and you know some would argue that Notre Dame was in the position then that USC is in now. Like a lot of fans, I don't think anyone that actually has decision making power at Notre Dame thought this, but a lot of fans, a lot of media thought. That was the end of Brian Kelly after four and eight and getting run off the field at USC and having Jerry Tillery go crazy on the field. Like uh, a couple reports came out later that night saying he's already looking for another job. And uh, it was just absolute chaos. And that was with Clay Heldon coaching USC too. Like yeah. this wasn't like different regime ago. And then in 14, uh, whenever Golson got yanked for Malik Zaire out there and USC ran them off the field. And, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, but Brian Kelly said something after the game to the extent of – uh, I want to thank Steve Sarkeesian. You know, it could have been a lot worse than it was. Like, he basically said that they could have run up the score on their name that day, and they didn't. Um, and, and now, flash forward to 2019, where, yes, Brian Kelly is basically uh, congratulating Clay Heldon on a career well done. Um, I, I'm with you, even if USC <laughs> wins out, and 9-3 and three is not good enough at USC, or at least for the people who uh, are in charge of making decisions there, um, especially with recruiting. Uh, they should never be as bad recruiting as they are right now. And you've got Oregon, Alabama, and Clemson coming into Southern California right now and just getting their pick of the litter. Like, I just don't think that's sustainable. Uh, another year uh, of that instability or uncertainty. Um, 
uh, on the sidelines for USC. I mean, it's just too good of a job to be in the situation that it's in right now. And I, 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 that's why I thought, I know Bruce talked about this a little bit uh, when you had him on last week, but uh, th- th- there's a part of USC fans, I think, who are just ready to, 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 to uh, pull, the, pull the plug, I guess you should say. Like a win over Notre Dame would have created a lot of momentum and feel good vibes. And maybe USC does win out from here on out. I, I think they probably lose to Oregon regardless, but maybe they do win out and they go 10-2 and two and win the Pac-12 and go to the Rose Bowl or whatever. Really hard to fire a coach then. Um, but but I, I think it's what needs to be done regardless. I, we had, my wife had a couple friends over earlier in the day, and one of them was a USC grad, and uh, she was just so apathetic. She went there during the bush liner errors too, and she was just so apathetic about it. I said, you know, what, what boat are you in tonight? Do, do you want them to win and beat your rival, or are you – um, do, do you want Clay Helton fired? And this is the quickest way to, to do it is, is to lose an Notre Dame. And she kind of threw her hands up. I was like, I just really want us to stop embarrassing ourselves. Let's start with that. <laughs> and she meant that on a university level, an athletic department level, a football level, you name it. So um, when you've got the casual fans saying that, I, I think that gives you a pretty good temperature of the state of the program. All right. Well, soak it up, Notre Dame fans. You have USC, <laughs> USC alumna uh, and Matt Fortuna friend seeing like, ah, just stop embarrassing yourself. Um, that's a good hey, look. It's all a good place for Notre Dame to be five and one going into the bye week. Your rival's a complete mess right now, and you helped make it that way. And then you have another rival coming up that is quite a bit less messy than USC, but still messy on its own right. And you can help keep it that way too. So it's overall, it's a good place for Notre Dame to be. And that's probably a good place for us to wrap up this latest edition of the Shamrock. Thank you for listening. You can rate, review, subscribe our podcast on Apple iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, you can go to theathletic.com slash the shamrock. Um, we'd love to have you. We'll have a bonus episode, I think, coming up later this week. It's a bye week, but our, our podcast should not take uh, Thursday off. Maybe we'll have uh, our good friend John Walters from the bubble screen of make an appearance. Um, might be a good... Uh, State of Notre Dame. Uh, do we have enough time in the day to, to have John talking about? Maybe we'll have to do a two-parter. I don't football. know. <laughs> but uh, we will be back later this week for our bonus ed- edition of the Shamrock for athletic subscribers only. Again, thanks for listening. This has been the latest edition of the Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by Matt Fortuna.